Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com/acast code acast. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. Coming up on today's show, there's a news blackout down under as Facebook users wake up to headline-free feeds. The sun sets on BBC World News in China. Meghan Markle wins her long-running privacy case against the Daily Mail's publisher, and there's more funding for COVID-hit community radio stations. Plus, is Russell T Davies right to say extinction looms for Auntie? And I'll start, so I'll finish as we guess the game show in the Media Podcast quiz. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And first up joining me in my panel today we welcome back the editor of Newsweek International the never knowingly underopinionated Mr Alex Hudson. Hello Alex. <laughs> Hello Ollie, how are you going? I'm all right, thank you. I think of everyone that we have on this show you might be the person who's genuinely tried Clubhouse. Is that a reasonable punt? That is a reasonable punt. We are launching Newsweek on Clubhouse next Monday. Wow. So if you want- Uh, we are I say well because it's a relatively fusty brand compared to where people say Clubhouse is. What's it actually like there then? It's filled with uh Silicon Bros and it's one of the most diverse platforms at least in its starting startup phase that I've ever come across. The amount of people of color on there engaging and having interesting conversations that I'm sort of dipping in and out of is exciting. Um but no we're doing a daily news discussion on Clubhouse hopefully next Monday as long as all the So it's what should be in the news tomorrow is the kind of crux of it. So that's starting on Clubhouse under Great. my username, which is Alex Huds. If you want to follow me on Clubhouse. Great. I'm glad that we managed to, you know, anchor in some promotion for you. I was genuinely asking out <laughs> of a hunch. You could have said no, I've never been there. Don't know what it is. Wait, did do they have podcasts on there then or is it all live or is is it just that actually thinking of podcasts as pre-recorded things and and live discussions as something else is now going to be blurred it, away? It's very blurry, right? So it's it's a live discussion where you have a selected panel of speakers, so it's it's essentially a live podcast, but one the difference is that you're not limited to the people who are the first five people who have mic- microphones, you can open it out to all manner of people and Elon Musk's been on there which was much talked about in the media and there was a fake Brad Pitt trying to talk about Bitcoin or some sort of other cryptocurrency in some way that was very confusing. Um but it it could be there's 2 million active daily users now it could be something huge it could just be a flash in the pan we don't know yet but we thought let's let's go in and have a conversation on it see what takes see what doesn't also joining us alongside alex making his media podcast debut is mr steven bricknor hello steven hi there how's it going yeah good welcome to the show you have um, had very senior roles in tv development for the last decade or so 
And I don't know, in my experience working in TV development, it's the kind of job that can feel like you've been doing it for a decade when actually you've only been working up idea for a couple of months. Um, how do you stay sane? Well, yeah, imagine a decade feels more like a century. It's, I don't know if you've ever been in the street and seen pigeons fighting over chips. That's pretty much, you know, the kind of world of development. Um, day in day out just chip kind of, being the idea or the commissioner the commissioner being the chip i think <laughs> the the, the, okay. the kind of the commission if that makes sense yeah yeah um but it's yeah it's it's tough you you get used to a lot of rejection you um always trying to kind of find something new and interesting and exciting uh one heartbeat quicker than the next development producer and steve give us an idea of of what it's like at the moment in factual telly in 2021 uh, what are those um, chips <laughs> they're <laughs> looking for at the moment? <laughs> what pigeon do they want to come and peck them? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I, I don't think fundamentally the, the things commissioners look for ever really change. You know, they're, they're always looking for something new. They're looking for something uh, that hasn't been done before. Um, I think at the moment, the, the Holy Grail is finding finding the next format that really speaks to the experience we've had over the past year and how that's affected Britain moving forward and our attitudes towards, you know, everything from dating, food to relationships, uh, to how we work. And I think that's the kind of space where we're going to see in 2021, 2022, some really interesting new formats kind of emerge. It's actually, I mean, if you look at the kind of schedules at the moment, a lot of the things that are doing really, really well have been around for a really, really long time and are feeling pretty tired. And I think the audiences are noticing that and actually want some new uh, some new content you know when you sort of see something like i don't know dragon's den going to bbc one i can't see why anyone might be excited about that um you know it's been around for 18 years now but is it because people seek comfort from you know the, the viewing that they've grown up with it's a, it's a mix of kind of nostalgia and knowing what you're going to get which when you're feeling a bit anxious and the world is you know constantly pivoting is actually quite reassuring I, I, there's an element of that i mean as long as Antiques Roadshow is on every Sunday evening, I'm sure most people will be happy. But I don't think nostalgia is a good reason to prop up formats indefinitely and just keep them going. I mean, it might be brutal that Netflix's attitude around kind of three series and out is is probably really healthy for the kind of creative renewal of of, of broadcasting and and SVODs. Um, I sort of feel that hopefully commissioning editors and, and comment teams will start start thinking they need to take a few more risks again and what what has changed in terms of the way you pitch something now because i presume it's mostly over zoom whereas it used to be mostly in person it's it's uh far more well obviously zoom more, more zoom orientated um although in the past we used to kind of send off top lines paras you know one pages kind of um without having any conversation that's become the, the basic entry point and the zoom is usually the usually the follow-up um actually in real terms you you get better clearer access to commissioning editors um you know when a meeting starts at 9 30 on zoom and finishes at 10 30 you get them for the whole hour there's no kind of uh waiting around <laughs> can't get up and get you a cup of tea i don't i don't have to sit in horse free road for 40 minutes waiting for someone to kind of <laughs> for someone's assistant to kind of come down and collect us um so in some ways they're, they're, they're they've become more accessible does that mean though that they're more likely to cut through the bullshit in a way i mean can you like what's the soonest that you've realized this pitch is dead when you're telling someone an idea and has it come quicker on zoom uh personally you can you can say it almost as quickly as the words leave your mouth but i think um there's still there's still a tendency to kind of try to hoard hoard new ideas with commissioning editors they they the, the truth is most of the time they don't know 
if the idea is good or not until they've had an opportunity to kind of go take it outside the room and speak to their peers about it. So actually th- that kind of idea that things are happening quicker, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I've just worked on something for Channel 4, which has taken a very long time to kind of get green lit. But really the idea hasn't changed a huge amount of time in that process. It's just, you know, with so much stuff up in the air, it's made it really hard to get a decision one way or the other. And of course, Alex, as an editor, you're on the flip side of that kind of conversation, aren't you? What's the best way for someone to get your attention when they're pitching you an idea for Newsweek? Uh, do not ring me 10 seconds after you sent me an email asking if you've got my email. It drives <laughs> me completely mad. That, that happened today. And I just, um, it's um, we've got a new slogan at the minute, which is be unique, entertaining, um, and unmissable, right? So it's what are those, how do you do those three things, right? If it's just something that's everywhere else, why we, we, unless you're really important, we don't care what you think about a news issue that's already happened. And what do you offer us that you can't find anywhere else? So if we're going to see it across the BBC or across New York Times and you're giving it to us an hour later, what's the point of us doing it? It's how are you interesting us and what are you offering us that we couldn't get by ourselves or that audiences couldn't find anywhere else? And is the answer to that question sometimes personality? Because that, that would seem to be a lot, a lot of people listening to you just say that would think, well, I can't offer anything new in terms of insight but i can offer some spies yes i think uh so it's it's who are the people who are, who are the people who are gonna who are at the center of a story so once again like if you're going to provide analysis on a thing that affects people why wouldn't we just go to the people it's directly affecting and speak to them so it's 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 that sort of thing how do you get to the heart of the story and all of those other buzzwords and management words that i've just come out with over the last sentence but getting getting to the actual <laughs> middle middle of the thing or else or else you just you're losing out and you're you're telling someone else's story rather than your own well to get directly to the heart of the unique unmissable news that we cover here on the media podcast of course we don't want to go to the people affected we want to ask your opinion <laughs> so let's get on with the agenda at hand and uh we're going to start on the other side of the world um with news or rather the lack of news on facebook in australia users there can no longer share or read news articles from australian or international publishers in a row over proposed legislation from the australian government alex hold my hand here what is going on in 2018 the australian government uh, the regulator launched an inquiry into what impact Google and Facebook were having on competition, particularly around advertising. And they found that there was an imbalance of power between tech firms and the media. And they recommended a code of conduct that was very long and complicated, but it, essentially it meant that they were going to get a share of advertising revenue or there was going to be some sort of deal struck between those platforms. Google went, okay, and started making deals. Uh, so News Corp is probably the biggest one. And Facebook has just pulled all of the Australian uh, new, news sites off its platform as a sort of nuclear option and and basically said, well, we've done what you asked. What do you want to do now? And it's almost, it it, it felt like an empty threat when they threatened to do it uh, last year. Now it's real. Everyone's gone, oh, they really did mean it. That's a, that's a surprise. Or um, did so, they? Or, you know, isn't it clearly just a bargaining chip? I, the, the best, that, I think the most interesting thing, it's the perfect storm with it being Australia because they're, they're a big enough country that it that it's it's significant so around the world everyone's watching to see what comes out of this and they speak english so lots of people in the world understand what they think (laughs) precisely and but they're they're still not in the top 20 countries of facebook users so a business of apps article said that um, australia's got a population 24 mil so even if everybody in australia was a facebook using adult they would still only reach 19th place of most popular facebook countries regardless of the politics here though steve um 
it just isn't good PR for Facebook, is it? And then they must have made the decision that it doesn't matter that it's bad PR. But I mean, for one thing, they're ostensibly refusing to pay a nominal tax, you know, despite being one of the world's biggest companies. And for another thing, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and they're turning off news to an ageing demographic who are using their service who might want to know where their vaccines are at. Well, I I think when they're, you know, certainly when they're just come out of a period of time where they've been at the heart of this kind of disinformation machine, you know, during the the presidential election and the criticism they've been getting around that, just to pull out completely out of Australia doesn't send a kind of good message to its users or, you know, to uh, news outlets who are trying to get, you know, factually, properly checked journalism out. Um, It just sort of, it sort of smacks that they don't sort of value it in the same way maybe perhaps Google is uh, by by playing ball a little bit more with the content providers. Um, I think in this kind of era of disinformation, you sort of, you want Facebook to be really kind of open and honest and support good quality journalism. Yeah, I mean, their argument, Alex, is essentially... Well, we're different to Google and other search engines because publishers willingly upload their content to us, and so they're volunteering the information to us, and why should we pay them to provide them with a platform? But is that really true? I mean, don't you have to basically have your content on Facebook? I think three years ago you definitely did. I think now it, and it's a case of across all publishers, most of publishers' Facebook traffic will come from users sharing their stories to their own pages. So they won't come from the brand themselves. And so the the brand's choice is to publish that story, but it's not to publish it on Facebook necessarily. It's the question of whether or not then that publishers are benefited by having Facebook as a platform. So, So particularly in older users, older users go to Facebook and then they click through for news rather than going to a news site for news, which is something that the entire news industry is desperately trying to change. Probably New York Times at the front of that, BBC and the Daily Mail have been leading on that for a while. So the question is, should Facebook pay when people prefer their platform to a news homepage? And that's difficult. And it all depends on whether or not publishers need Facebook more than Facebook needs publishers. And I do not know the answer to that question. And it also, I suppose, goes to the heart of the origins of the open web, doesn't it, Steve? Because the whole point of the way that the World Wide Web was built was you can always link to something for free. You can refer someone to something for free. That's not the same as publishing it. That's how Wikipedia works. That's how other sites that are unaffected by this work. Well, it sort of feels like you're, you're closing the stable gate after the horse has bolted. But I think what would be interesting to find out is if that kind of slightly more codified relationship between content makers and these big platforms, whether that does really benefit them. Does it, is it going to increase you know, the Telegraph subscriptions by being linked to, to Google? Um or by having that kind of link, that click through from Facebook, is it going to financially benefit them and allow them to properly fund their journalism? But also, like, who's getting the money, Alex? And that's the other thing, isn't it? You know, do we say, in the case of Google, so you're saying Google kind of played ball. I mean, that's true. There was a threat, basically, from Bing, wasn't there, to say, well, we'll pay if you won't. And that kind of seemed to edge them along a little bit. But do you say, great, journalism is being properly funded by Google because they're going to give some money to News Corp every time you click the link? Or do you say, oh, sorry, Open Web, it was nice while it lasted, but actually turns out Rupert Murdoch's going to get all the money anyway? The idea of the Open Web is a tricky one anyway, because as, as more increasingly more sites are finding out a subscription model is a, is a way to have more stable income rather than advertising income. That's, once again, a discussion where there is no right answer to that. Both are valid. But when it comes to how you fund journalism, 
which journalism do you decide is worthy of funding? Is stuff that is well-read worthy of funding or is it only meaningful investigations that take six months and nobody reads? Is that the sort of stuff you should be funding? And who who draws the line and where is that line drawn about what is worthy journalism and what is just stuff that you found out that you're writing about? You know, and and bo- both are valid. Like, so take sports journalism. Is that valid journalism and should that be funded? Is or is that less or more worth than a, than a quick viral story about somebody who's been defrauded? It's a difficult thing about whether you make that judgment. The same as every publications editor is, is this story worthy? Should be, is it a Newsweek story? Is it a BBC story? Is it whatever story? How do you work out how you fund those things if you're a third party platform? But also another reason that it seems that Google have stumped up now is and, and only in Australia, but the presumption is this might roll out elsewhere as well, obviously, is that they're launching Google News Showcase, which is it's a new product, isn't it? I think you need the Google News app to see it in the UK, so I, I haven't. Have you? And also, as a publisher, as an editor, does it really do these things really actually make any difference? I mean, how many links and referrals do you get from sites like that and Apple News, really? I'm going to speak very vaguely about the level of traffic that one in, in a personal capacity. Get. I think is the phrase you're reaching for. Uh, yeah, I'm talking in a personal <laughs> capacity. I I would purely assume that the the Google News traffic is significant across globally, so that it's it's not an insignificant page views figures. When you talk about the level of loyalty it brings to brands, I think that's a more difficult question, and there are no clear answers on that. But take Facebook. Facebook has just started its news initiative, so it announced it's already launched in the US, but it announced that it's launching in the UK. Um, the next few weeks, so that that plans to pay news publishers to be partnered with Facebook. So that that type of model is beginning already, and we know that Facebook and Google provide huge amounts of traffic to publishers across the world. No, but the ones where there are affiliate content, I mean, the, and that have been around for a while, so we know. So Flipboard, Pocket, Apple News, are they actually significant? And as a user, they don't seem to me to be. Uh, yes. That uh, Flipboard is still, Flipboard's user base has, has shrunk over the recent years because of Google's uh, controversial push towards its own platforms above Flipboard, but they are still all big traffic drivers. And if you're looking for page views, all of those are valid and can drive millions of page views each month. And I think, so once you get into the sort of real multinational websites or multinational sites, it's it's less of a percentage, but for the smaller sites, that that could be a huge jump in traffic that could be 30, 40%. And on the smaller sites, Steve, and you mentioned misinformation and, and arguably, actually, if you've got kind of more legit sources earning revenue for the placement on sites like Google in a way, you can be sure about the quality of the journalism. But at the same time, you end up with a, which is why the open web existed, you end up with a, a two lane highway, don't you, where the smaller players are never given the prominence of the bigger players. And it's actually harder to combat a political narrative or propaganda that way than it would be otherwise. Yeah, true. I mean, and, and also, I, I suppose that's, that's why you need to look for look at these other platforms that are kind of emerging, like Clubhouse and stuff, where people are having those slightly kind of different conversations and where you might get some alternative information. But um, I, I wonder if that kind of free-to-access journalism and news is always going to exist in some form and the people who want it will find it but those who aren't incentivized to kind of look beyond really you know learning what they already know uh will never look much further anyway alex where do you think this is leading to i mean particularly in regard to britain because we are a much more important market for google and facebook than australia we don't know i think 
eventually journalism will be paid for, content will still be free. So that will be the, the difference. If you're looking for a quick rundown of the news, you will be able to get that for free. The BBC already does a brilliant job of that. But if you're looking for in-depth analysis, in-depth opinion, in-depth and unique insight into those things, the publisher's job is how you make sure that you're providing a service that people are willing to pay for and that feel that they feel they're getting value for money for. I think uh, the new the UK market isn't saturated. Last figures I looked, it was under 16% of UK adults subscribe to a, a, a pay for a new service. So that's where the growth will be over the next couple of years. Okay, well, there's one place where we guarantee your news will always be free. There's more to come after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Alex and Steve are still with me. And let's talk about media law now because the Duchess of Sussex has won her case against Associated Newspapers. Uh, Action she took after a private letter that she'd written to her father was published by the Mail on Sunday. Um, Stephen, here's what she said afterwards. We all lose when misinformation sells more than truth, when moral exploitation sells more than decency, and when companies create their business model to profit from people's pain. Um, But the Mail on Sunday got hold of that letter, which did exist, you know, so it arguably isn't misinformation. They published it on the basis it had huge public interest because she's in line to the throne and this was evidence of her troubled family life. And it seemed to be in contradiction to the way the letter had previously been described in the media as her giving an olive branch to her father. It's quite clear to see the justification for the publication of it, whether or not you like, you know, royal tittle-tattle being news or not. It's not exactly fake news, is it? It's it's not fake news, no, but it, I think it's um, it's a, a nice rewriting of history. If you're the victor in this and you you want to kind of come across as somebody who's the aggrieved party, then rewriting these sort of things as fake news is probably a good way of doing it. I'd be interested to know, Alex, where the judge in this case thought the time period was when a private letter was expected to be private. Because that was essentially the argument that won, wasn't it? She had the right that this letter was private. But as someone who, as I say, whose children are in line to the throne, probably, probably if you publish this letter in 20 years, you'd say, well, it's part of history. It's a letter of note. It will be a piece of history in a generation's time, Ollie. I think you're right. But it's it, at what point 
Meghan Markle already has very little private life anyway. There has to be a line somewhere. And the judge found in this case that that was over the line. Should he have gone to trial, do you think? Because the judge made a decision because, you know, it didn't have to be the public parade of Meghan Markle's father flying over to give evidence against her and all this. But that then means that there's always going to be a suspicion amongst some parts of the public that the establishment is closing ranks and doing a cover up here because that evidence wasn't aired. <laughs> I, I think the British judicial process and court process is actually one of the best bits of Britain and its impartiality is a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so given that they are absolutely infinitesimally better at the legal process than I am, I'm going to back their judgment 100%. Uh, let's talk about the BBC uh, because there's plenty of news, as always, concerning Auntie this week. Let's start with the ongoing tit for tat concerning Ofcom's revocation of CGTN's license. CGTN is the Chinese state broadcaster's news outlet here in this country, Steve. Uh, But they technically were run by a subsidiary and then Ofcom found they weren't. How has the Chinese government now responded? Uh, yeah, so they've um, they've banned BBC World News, um, which is it's a shocking move. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of unsurprising. I mean, it's they've got the power to do so. Why wouldn't they? It seems like a, an obvious tit for tat, like you said, tit for tat response. I mean, people in Britain are very up in arms about this, Alex, because we think there's a huge, you know, disparity between the BBC and the Chinese Communist Party. But from a Chinese perspective... The BBC is a government-funded institution, and so CGTN, so what's the difference? It's not the same thing. I don't think even people in China, I need to speak very carefully here, are not saying that their broadcaster is impartial in a way that the BBC has to spend thousands of hours every year proving it's impartial. But it's it's a wider point on free speech, right? Where does free speech end? Where does where do the limits on what you can and can't say begin? Like the government is on a big sprint at the minute as reported in the Daily Telegraph about they're really protecting free speech in certain ways and this where free free speech ends and begins is this huge 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 issue that's going to go on and on but also it, it, in a further development it doesn't actually just concern the TV service anymore does it Steve it also concerns world service radio um, because uh, radio television Hong Kong has pulled its overnight simulcast of world service radio and the thing about BBC World News TV is it's not very good, is it? Um, <laughs> but for the World Service Radio, has been the international standard for that kind of English language impartial broadcasting for decades. I mean, that really is a concern, isn't it? It is. It's, it's a worrying sort of signifier of a kind of increasing lack of um, voice in, in the world, I think. Like, you know, how much sort of soft power we're going to have in that sort of area. And and how much access those people are going to have to really truthful, honest, good quality journalism uh, is a concern. And you know how the, the the BBC World Service can sort of break through this and hopefully get back into into Hong Kong is going to be it's going to be really sort of important to see. I think you disagreed with me, Alex, in that laughing um, response. You honestly had a pleasurable hour in front of BBC um, World News TV, probably when I was working for it. Um, I. I think it was, I was chatting to someone who is not the biggest fan of the BBC earlier today, and they were saying, this is kind of fine because it just means that BBC has to get us back in its colonial box. And I had, I'd never thought about the BBC's overseas service, particularly the World Service, in that sort of light. The idea that actually it's just still spreading that colonial word about how great Britain is and how we used to run things around here. 
And Stephen, on, on this side of the pond, do you see any anomalies uh, in the fact that RT, for example, is still able to broadcast and CGTN isn't? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of slightly hypocritical, isn't it, really? But like you said, I think the connections to the, the, the kind of human rights abuses that are happening are probably the thing that sort of tipped the, the China situation kind of more, made, made it feel more pressing um, that that sort of dif- disinformation is actually genuinely really hurting people at the moment. Staying with the BBC, but slightly closer to home, did you see the uh, stark assessment that Russell T Davis made about the corporation this week? Yes. Uh, so he suggested that the BBC is kind of a uh, sort of dying behemoth. Um, and despite the fact that we're in a kind of golden, as he calls it, a golden age of, of TV drama, uh, the BBC is really falling behind in its kind of, uh, from its sort of streaming rivals and and commercial rivals. And um, it's it's really interesting. I think I think he's right. I think the unscripted world is in the golden golden age. I think the fact that we're kind of getting access to uh, new and interesting voices and new and exciting kind of ways of storytelling is fantastic. I mean, you just look at the stuff uh, Disney Plus is doing with you know kind of Marvel shows and the the caliber and and diversity of the writers and people they're bringing in to manage and show run those projects. Um, and we're still getting elements of that on the BBC and people like Michaela Cole being supported, but it's getting fewer and further apart, I think. And, and, and actually the BBC has sort of needs to kind of really, I think in the next couple of years, really determine what it need, what it means to be a, a public service broadcaster in kind of 2021 and how that needs to fuel British creative kind of renewal. And I think actually we sort of touched on it earlier, the sort of, um, the constant sort of bolstering of very old TV formats is not necessarily, I think, what a PSB should be doing at the moment. I think it needs to be sort of um, being cutting edge and doing something new and taking those creative risks that, you know, ITV aren't going to be taking huge creative risks with their audience because they can't. Channel 4 seems to have kind of stalled a little bit on that. Well, I mean, on that point, I mean, of course, it's a Sin, written by Russell T Davies, was on Channel 4. So, I mean, it may not have ended up on the BBC, but it, it did end up on a public service broadcast and not a streaming service. So extinction seems a bit of a way off, doesn't it? Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's death by a thousand cuts in terms of the BBC. I mean, it's. I think this is just one problem of many that, they are, that they're facing. Um, but as, you know, kind of streaming services increasingly spend more money elsewhere, then the BBC is not going to be the first place or Channel 4. The PSPs aren't going to be the first place you go to when you have uh, an exciting scripted or unscripted project. Um, you know, it's getting increasingly harder to get funding for shows within that PSP setup. Um, so it only follows that the best program makers are going to go elsewhere. Except, I mean, what he was referring to, I think, uh, Alex, was kind of the politics behind the scenes. Uh, it was very clear, wasn't it, for a while, no ministers on the Today programme and a kind of defund the BBC agenda leaking through into the cabinet before the pandemic, <laughs> that that's where things were going. But we are in a different place now, aren't we? Like the, the gossip seems to be, well, the BBC's kind of proven its worth and the, the Tories aren't going to mess with the BBC, not for another 10 years now. You know, the, the, the Chinese government pulling BBC World Service because it was um, critical of the Chinese government the UK government ministers not appearing on the Today programme after the Today programme was critical of the UK government. I mean, one wouldn't want, wouldn't want to draw any parallels between those two different things because they're obviously very different. But you can see where they're going with that. The BBC is starting to take more risks. Like Fiona, who's BBC Three controller, is 
bloody brilliant, absolutely incredible thinker. And the way that she takes daring commissions is very, very, very good, Fiona Campbell. Um, but Channel 4, for example, like you're talking about taking risks. All of the com- domestic broadcasters have to take risks. Commissioning Russell T. Davis, him who wrote Doctor Who, isn't really a risk because it's that bloke who wrote Doctor Who. It's um, like if you look at Michaela Cole, that was a huge risk that BBC took and it, and it paid off. And it, oh, and even if you get 10 other failures like that, giving new writers that, that platform to go and experiment and make it horribly boring or horribly wrong is exactly what the public service broadcasting should be doing. The BBC is not doomed, but it is horribly underfunded. And the second that people realise that we need to pay more for our licence fee, even if it does need to be means tested in a more equitable way, then the more the more Netflix-like quality the BBC and other public service broadcasters can offer. Yes, well, that's the evolution, not extinction, really. That Russell Davies was 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 hinting at, wasn't it, Stephen? That that basically the license fee is doomed if not the BBC. Yeah, true. I suppose it, it, it's. I suppose that's an important point, actually. But the, it, whether the BBC as a as an organisation will will evolve quick enough as as the kind of license fee gradually ebbs away. That's. I think that's a. That's an important kind of question, um, and as as long as they can continue to take really big risks, or they start taking bigger risks and start, like I said, more creative renewal around unscripted as well as scripted projects, um, then they'll they'll find themselves in good stead. If they don't, then eventually people are going to start questioning why they might have to pay a subscription to the BBC when the quality of what they're getting on um, Disney Plus is, you know, just as good, better made, higher budgets you know, more A-listers, all of that sort of stuff. Well, let's talk about the TV licence, actually, because the BBC have written to the 650,000 households who are yet to reply to the letter about getting a paid-for TV licence. These are the over-75s who previously got the TV licence for free. What have they said in the letter? What's changing? Well, essentially, they've they've just extended the deadline. Um, you know, part, I imagine part in part due to the fact that COVID has kind of caused a huge amount of disruption for a lot of the people that um, they're, they're seeking to contact, but also because like almost everybody probably ignores the first two letters from the TV licensing company. <laughs> I think that's just the kind of default. I think two million people didn't, to be fair, but it's still a sizable minority who did, isn't it? Uh, certainly, I mean, certainly in our household. <laughs> it's still it's still a huge number, but I think I think those people are the people who really value the BBC, the, the over 75s, the, the kind of core audience for a lot of bbc one content not not by design necessarily but um i think i think that they'll get those six hundred thousand people begrudgingly but but it might just take a little bit of time and they've got the get out clause alex of the pandemic they can say you know because of coronavirus we're giving people a little bit longer to reply to this letter but otherwise this could have been presented as a bit of a shambles couldn't it you know the bbc writes to people they get ignored and then they just extend the deadline over 75 play a game of chicken with the bbc um, it feels a little bit like that because the PR disaster of an enforcement officer going around to a pensioner's house and saying, why haven't you paid? Like, well, I thought it was free. They can't really enforce that fine meaningfully because it's who every tradition, you know, the mail picks that up, the Telegraph picks that up because that's their core audiences. And it's a great story, right? So BBC forces way into pensioners' house to demand licence fee or to check for television or whatever that thing is. If they don't respond, what's the BBC's recourse here? They, they're not going to go around to everyone's houses. 
So what's the next step? Do they do they know who these people are and do they start sort of cajoling them or do they off do they start commissioning content specifically for that sort of audience so they can make them convince them that there's more value there? Or I I don't know what the solution is, but they're not going to go around and enforce it. Well, and is it fair, Steve, to point the finger at the BBC and say, if there is a cock up, you've cocked this up? Because I mean, I'm sure if I were to ask you whether this whole situation was the BBC's fault, you like literally every guest we've ever had on this show would say, no, it's the government's fault. Was it first the Labour government's fault for giving the over 75s free TV licenses when that wasn't economically sustainable? Then it was the Tories' fault for taking it away and putting the burden on the public broadcaster when that's not their business model. Fine, but now it is their job to actually implement this change. If they cock it up, is it reasonable to point and point that out? I, I don't. I don't think it is. I like. I, I think it's slightly unfair, sort of expecting the BBC to become. Uh, a sort of its own bailiff. Um, it just doesn't sort of you know they make they might make shows about them, but I, I sort of think it's an unreasonable expectation. I mean, lots of people I think see have seen that you know sometimes see the TV license as this kind of unavoidable tax. Um, I, I think it should be slightly disconnected from the actual organisation and the broadcaster. And, you know, they they can't be expected to collect that money. It doesn't it doesn't fully make sense to me. Okay, let's talk about radio now. And uh, there's some good news for some smaller stations struggling under COVID restrictions. Uh, Stephen, who's supplying the cash and which stations are benefiting? Yeah, the Community Radio Fund panel have awarded uh, some emergency funding to various, I think it's around 53 community radio stations around the country, um, specifically to to help support kind of projects where they're tackling, uh, you know, loneliness and isolation, um, things that which obviously during the kind of COVID pandemic have been, uh, you know, exacerbated and, and made much worse. Um, so it's kind of, it's a good piece of news. It's, it's a relatively small am- amount of money per community station. I think on average, like three and a half grand or something. That's right. £3,784 is what you end up with. But it pays, to, I guess, to keep the lights on. But it also sort of demonstrates that these relatively small community radio operations do actually have a really important uh, purpose and reach. Uh, and and actually, perhaps it's something we need to be giving a little bit more attention to uh, as as we sort of move forward, as as kind of regional programming decreases across like lots of platforms. I think these these the people doing this work are are really key. Is it a good use of funds, in your opinion, Alex? I mean, there's six hundred thousand pounds available during COVID. Um, Two hundred thousand pounds of which was for this third round of funding which was uh, given by the Community Radio Fund Panel. And, I mean, of course, you can point to good things they do in terms of actually helping people get their foot on the ladder and work in radio and support the community in that way. But in terms of listeners actually listening to it, I don't know. I've, I've never actually met anyone who says their favourite radio station is their community radio station. No, but without knowing the details of every single one of those community radio stations, there is going to be a small community around them and, the, and they are going to be in the most most need of that support they're going to be the loneliest most vulnerable people of those societies i agree with you in in a vacuum without all of those human stories without all of that support sometimes life-saving support that these things offer of course give it to podcasting just use it for podcasting rumor has it podcasting is catching on the the problem with it is is that six hundred thousand pounds is not a lot of money and if it helps these people feel like like allow them to do the thing they love and that it helps those that's that group of people really sustain themselves through this horrific time then wonderful beautiful it is a small price to pay okay you will be thrilled to know alex and Stephen will be slightly confused to know which i always enjoy watching uh, as it's his first time on the show that there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media podcast quiz 
This week's quiz is a game show marathon. I will describe a game show and you can buzz in with the name of the game show and crucially tell me why it is in the news. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Alex, you will say... Alex. And Stephen, you will say... Steve. Ready? Let's go. What show am I? A stalwart of the Channel 4 schedule. Steve. I've been hosted... But Steve. Countdown. You, I am Countdown. And why am I in the news? Yeah, and uh, basically they've got a new host, Anne Robinson. Uh, in an inspired move, is uh, going to be hosting Countdown, taking over from, is it, is it Nick Hewer? Yeah. The first woman to host Countdown. Inspired, you say? Why? Why inspired? I, I think it's going to be, a, uh, hopefully, she's going to bring a bit of that kind of weakest link tone to Countdown, maybe make it a little bit more appointment to view again. Um, you know, get, you know get I think of it show. as a cuddly show, and so you wouldn't want to put someone acerbic on it. And obviously her, you know, her whole thing is, you know, that she can be a bit of a bitch. That's basically also, the thing. I think a lot of the stuff that was said in The Weakest Link would not pass 2021 broadcasting laws. All of those stories, the days after she was announced, meant that she would not be saying that now. But I suppose if you look at Nick Hewer, and he seems to have been very successful, they've got their biggest ratings for years at the moment, haven't they? He's also, I mean, he was known for also being quite acerbic on The Apprentice. Yeah, and he, he had his grumpy moments on Countdown as well, I think. I, I, I think you need um, a little bit of grit on that show just to kind of just to just to kind of lift it a little bit i think it'd be i think it could be quite good fun okay quiz number two what show am i i'm adapted from a japanese format known as the tigers of money in afghanistan alex. i'm called Steve. dream and achieve uh, alex yes uh it that has to be dragon's den right it is dragon's den yes known as uh, dealing with sharks in brazil uh, <laughs> was the end of that clue um how many investments have been made on Dragon's Den, Alex, for a bonus point since the start of the UK version in 2005? 250. That's pretty good, but obviously, I mean, it was ridiculous to ask you to stab in the dark and get the precise number. It was 276. Uh, but anyway, why is Dragon's Den in the news? Uh, you've already, you leaked that earlier in the show. It's moving from BBC Two to BBC One. It is. Steve, makes sense to you? It, I mean, it does. It's a relatively successful brand on BBC Two, but I, I again, I think it's a slightly frustrating, cynical commission on BBC One's part of again, picking something that's work, that works on BBC Two and just shifting it to one to give it to a slightly bigger audience. But doesn't that mean a nursery slope vacancy on BBC Two? I, I think the BBC One should be trying to commission bold, new, exciting formats in its own right, rather than having this sort of always de this constant desire to nursery slope everything on BBC Two. Uh, right, game show number three. What a show am I? Originally broadcast from a church, I've been presented by Peter Snow and Clive Anderson, amongst others. Considered the ultimate test of knowledge, my visual trademark is a black chair. Big clue oh, there. Steve. Steve. Must, uh, mastermind. Correct. Why is that show in the news? Uh, I think uh, the, well, the host has left. He's claiming that um, I've, I've completely forgotten who it is now. Uh, John, John Humphreys. John Humphreys. I'm not going to allow Alex to bunt in there, otherwise we won't have a clear winner. Carry on. Uh, John, John Humphreys has, has stated that the calibre of guests on the Celebrity Mastermind was so poor that he didn't want to keep doing it. Basically, he didn't recognise anybody who was playing the celebrity version of the game. Uh, so he's decided to leave it. That's that's what I think the story is. That's that's probably a version of the story that turned up in the Express. I'll take it. John Humphreys is leaving Mastermind uh, after uh, 18 years and more than 750 shows. Uh, all of which means you're the winner of the quiz, Steve, on your debut on the show. Wow. Brilliant. If, if John Humphreys was hosting this show, he would uh, have nothing disparaging to say about the quality of our guests. That was an, an excellent uh, bit of repartee all round. Well done. Uh, do come again, Stephen. My thanks to Stephen Bricknell and to Alex Hudson. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then visit themediapodcast.com slash donate. 
and select an amount to keep us going all year round. Uh, if you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode dedicated to you. They don't offer that on Mastermind, do they? Uh, you can also catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a PPM and Rethink Audio production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.